Hello, everyone. My name is Natalie Carey, and I'm a senior vice president of industry affairs and social responsibility with NARIT, the trade association representing real estate investment trusts or REITs. My guest today is none other than Mr. Robert L. Johnson, founder and chairman of the RLJ Companies LLC, an innovative business network that provides strategic investments in a diverse portfolio of companies. He was named by USA Today one of the 25 most influential business leaders of the past 25 years. He's the founder and former chairman of Black Entertainment Television, number two on Black Enterprises list of titans, the 40 most powerful African-Americans in business, and a frequent CNBC contributor. Mr. Johnson, thank you for joining me here today. I'm looking forward to the insights that you will share. So thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Delighted to be with you, Natalia. Welcome and, to uh, the world of REITs. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I'd like to start off with just a few questions about you, if you don't mind. So th the first question that I have is, you know, at what point did you, the son of Edna and Archie, a school teacher and a farmer, the ninth of 10 children, at what point did you realize that you were on the verge of being someone great? The great part is a little tough to answer. <laughs> the verge on being a little bit uh, fortunate to take advantage of opportunities uh, by the time I came of age, uh, I could easily appoint to. Um, I was the first of my uh, nine siblings to go off to college. So that in itself was a milestone. The first to um, move to Washington, D.C. to get a career working uh, in the government as a press secretary to a congressman and later on as a lobbyist for the National Cable Television Association. So all of these sort of developments uh, didn't necessarily uh, predict greatness, but they predicted that I had, in some cases, I would say, uh, Natalia, opportunities that my earlier siblings didn't have because of the change in times, the change in race relationships, the change in racial opportunities, the change in the political climate that caused the government to address civil rights and economic rights. And so uh, it was more uh, of coming, uh, coming of age at a time when the country was opening up doors to uh, Black Americans. But even with the doors being open, right, you have to still be motivated to walk through, right? And one of the things I'm really interested in is what motivated you to accomplish things that were rarely achieved, much less achieved by a person of color? Well, I've often said that uh, being an entrepreneur is somewhere found in your DNA that uh, you don't know it exists until you sort of reach that epiphany moment that says, I should do this or I can do this. I mean, obviously, there has to be a solid foundation provided in your earlier life uh, when you were a young child. And, and I would say that you referred to Edna, my mother, and Archie, my father. That foundation was laid in the form of work as hard as you can to be the best that you can be. Don't be afraid of hard work or back in the day. Don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. And so I had a belief that if I worked hard and gave my all, that I would be happy in doing what I was doing. So forget for the moment successful, just playing confident 
that you were doing what was in your best interest. I, I want to just talk a little bit about your early career. I don't know that many people know or, you know, that you were a communication staffer, you know, on the Hill. And, and that was kind of a part of your early um, career. And as you were doing that, what what advice would you now give to your younger self when you were in the midst of, of, of that career to kind of help you get to where you are today? Like what advice, what would you say to your younger self? Uh, Natalia, I would probably <laughs> tell them the same thing that I'm telling you. <laughs> you got, you know, in anything you do, you got to start off believing in yourself and you got to believe that you are doing things that will build for you confidence in your ability to achieve what you set out to do, and that you are uh, delivering whatever the uh, arrangement is, whether it's a service or a product or work, you're delivering that to someone who is going to treat you fairly, respect you, and you know, pay you, compensate you for what you're doing. That's something that's sort of rooted in the idea of that you have a responsibility, first of all, to yourself. And you have a responsibility to whomever you engage with if, if it is a fair exchange. That That's more what I'd call, you know, it could be rooted in religion. It could be rooted in philosophy, but it is rooted in some moral underpinning that says uh, you have an obligation in society to care for yourself and your family and, and, and others that you are close to. And at the same time, you have an obligation to live up to the tenets of society to make the whole uh, community better. Now, let's discuss BET. So, uh, you know, when you launched BET in 1980, did you have any idea? I mean, I just want to know, did you have any clue whatsoever how massive the impact on Black culture and just the culture in general would be? Did you did you see that at the time you were doing it? Well, I, I saw that the opportunity to create a uh, media company that would target the interest, in this case, viewing interest of Black Americans was something that was doable. And the reason I said it was doable because it had been done in other media. The great John Johnson, the founder of Ebony and Jet, had already proved that Black Americans had a strong desire for content in magazines, in print, and that they were willing to pay dollars to subscribe. And after a fashion of pushing very hard, he was able to convince white advertisers to buy pages in Black uh, publications. And that was followed by Essence Magazine and Black Enterprise. So it was, it was proof that media in that particular uh, genre of print could exist. And then you add to that, Black radio had been around for a long time. Black radio stations or radio stations, whether they were Black or not, Black-owned, were playing Black content, R&B, music, and soul music. And that was designed to draw Black listeners. And of course, you draw Black listeners, you sell advertising to, to uh, companies trying to reach the Black uh, black uh, consumer marketplace. So the technology concept of it and the market concept already existed in print and in radio. It did not exist in television because television was pretty much a medium that was distributed in local markets 
except for the networks of which at that time of BET started there principally only three, ABC, CBS, NBC. So, and that programming was distributed to what they call mass audience. So everything that was on the white television networks was designed to reach the mass and the mass of course were white consumers and the buying power uh, in the opinion of the advertisers was in the mass population of white consumers. So the, the, the business model was collect as many uh, viewers as possible and sell as much advertising to those viewers who advertisers felt could purchase their product. So there was no sense of targeting program or niche programming until cable and satellite technology emerged where you could connect the satellite signal circling the globe and distribute that signal to individual cable systems all around the country. So you could create what you call niche networks within a national footprint. And out of that came targeted networks, MTV, BET, CNN, ESPN, CNN, all of these things designed to use the television model, collect advertisers, distribute it to consumers, sell advertising. And there's one case in, in, in cable program, you added another source of revenue and that was fees from the cable operators. So you got basically two sources of income Cable operators paying you to, for the right to carry your program and advertisers paying you to, for the right to reach your customers. And out of that came BET. And BET was simply in a technological way, an extension of black print and black radio. So BET was followed in those footsteps, but with the technological interface. Okay. I'm, you know, you, you, you move from that and then now you have RLJ companies, right? That has a portfolio of hotels, streaming channels, gaming, entertainment, fashion, car dealerships, you know, 401k planning, private equity, et cetera. How, you know, does one have the mindset to build this empire? And what advice would you give to a young person who is looking to replicate that success? Well, the mindset has to be rooted in what I talked about earlier, that there is a, you have to have in you a core belief in a vision to do something that at least you haven't, you certainly haven't done. And maybe in some cases in the black community, no one else has done. So you got to believe in that, that you see something. So I believe that BET should exist. And I went forward and with the support of a uh, white investor by the name of Dr. John Malone, uh, made it happen. And so when I look at all these other businesses, I said, you know, there ought to be a role for blacks in business and private equity. And there were, and there were others. There should be a role for blacks in car dealership ownership. And there were blacks in car dealership. Hotels was a different story. There were no blacks in the hotel real estate business of any significance when I and, a, and, a, and my partner, Tom Baltimore, got together to start a, a private equity hotel fund, and then which later changed into the current RLJ Lodging Trust REIT. And all the other businesses, you look at, at least I look at it and I say, gee, this is something that should be done. This is something that could be done. And I believe I can do it. And I say, does it have a business model? If it does, does it have a purpose model? And then I say, let's try it. But you've got to have one element. You've got to be able to convince other people to go on, go on that 
vision journey with you. That's the, probably the most critical thing of being able to accumulate a number of business opportunities, that you must be able to attract talented people who believe in your vision, who believe that you are willing to work hard as they are willing to work, that one, you could do it, two, it could be done, and you should be the one to do it. Huh. Well, let's talk about firsts. So do you ever sit back and take in the magnitude of your accomplishments? It's, just, it's the sit back part that <laughs> I, I don't quite relate to because I, I do these things, Natalie, because I, I think I can do it. And as I said before, I think they can be done and they must have some goal. If it's a business, it must have a goal to benefit yourself, your family and your associates. Uh, if it's a public company like the Hotel Reed, it has a goal of benefiting its shareholders along with the others. And, and so you ask yourself, is there, go, is there a purpose in doing this? And for example, in the 401k a company retirement clearinghouse, our goal is to prevent in that business to prevent millions of Black Americans and low-wage workers from cashing out of their 401k accounts and lose that money for retirement in the future years. That, to me, is a wonderful purpose. And if you can match that up with the business, then that fits very well with my concept of vision and, and, and purpose. And so that's how I look at things. And, and when you meet great talent that wants to be a part of your journey, that's the most rewarding thing to give them an opportunity to become something that they can achieve their personal goals, professional goals, family goals, whatever. And to me, those are the things that allow you to accumulate through a, a holding company a number of businesses because those businesses are the result of people wanting to be a part of your vision, people willing to work with you, and your ability to attract that talent to be a part of it. Because you know the old saying, no person is an island, and no business is an island, and every business must have people who share the goals, purpose culture to make it successful. And I'm I'm going to just kind of segue from this, a great segue point. There are currently three Black CEOs of publicly traded REITs. Two of those CEOs were hired and advanced under your tutelage. Their question becomes, I mean, so that's like 70%, close to 70% of the Black CEOs are directly related to you. Uh, how were you able to recruit not one but two Black CEOs into an industry where the common belief is that the candidate pool is devoid of Black talent. How you find those talented people is that you've got to give them a belief that they have an opportunity to be as successful as they have the potential to be mm. in the environment that you offer them at the workplace or in the business. And unfortunately, many companies most of those white companies don't allow Blacks in what I call the deal flow that mm. determine who gets hired, who gets promoted, who gets placed in the top positions that can lead to either the, the top job as CEO or CFO or other strategic uh, executive positions. And that's because there's a tendency to not believe that in the Black workforce or business uh, associates, there's that culture 
that fits with their culture. So there's a tendency to be very shy about it. Now, some people could call it systemic racism. Some people can call it just fear. Other people could call it just plain, we we don't want to take a risk Mm -hmm. on someone failing in our business. And the unconscious part of it is in order to get my job done in the timeframes that we have, I have to go to the well and go to the candidate pool that I know, right? No one's going to go seeking something out. So I think the point that you're making is a very appropriate one. Right now, there's a drumbeat, not just in our industry, but I think in all of the industries that's intensifying related to the diversification of corporate boards, right? And the, the board of directors. And, and, and why is that something that CEOs should actually welcome, right? As opposed to it being something that is done to them, right? Why is it something that they should really welcome and, and, and accept? Well, 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 first of all, it's, it's good business for CEOs to diversify the board because they get diversification of ideas, diversification of uh, experience, and a diversification of, of uh, understanding the changes in not only the business world, but in the consumer world. So if you got women on your board, you get a, a voice on women's issues. You got black Americans on your board, you get a, you get a voice in there on black issues. And, and keep in mind, 70% of the US economy is, comes out of the consumer's pocket. The other thing is there are 40 million black Americans. Black Americans, unfortunately, have a wealth gap with white Americans. Uh, that's 10 times the white net worth mm-hmm. is 10 times that of black people. And so this country can't grow economically, can't uh, thrive economically to the level that it should. If it's got a huge population on the sidelines receiving government transfers in the form of payments that come out of the taxpayers' money, and it creates a sense of, uh, I, I guess, uh, disrespect at a minimum. Mm-hmm for people who feel that what I'm doing is taking my harder work and paying it to people who are not working as hard as I do. Mm -hmm. They tend to forget the lack of opportunities or discrimination that goes back hundreds of years, but it's there. And the way to do that is to, uh, as Obama said in a speech, give everybody a fair chance and a fair shot. And, Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's why businesses should make sure that their board is represented by diverse groups, whether it's males, females, uh, people mm-hmm. of different persuasions. It, it's, it starts out as good business and ultimately it ends up being good for the country. You know, Nareet, um, we've just launched the Dividends Through Diversity, Equity and Inclusion CEO Council with 32 publicly traded REIT CEOs representing every sector and subsector of the REIT industry. And that is one of the things that um, falls under my purview. And the goal of this CEO council is to create a strategic plan comprised of three or four initiatives to start um, Mm -hmm. to address the lack of diversity across the REIT industry. Where do you think we should focus our collective efforts? Without accountability, goals in business tend to become empty in implementation because everyone's responsible, but no one's responsible. (laughs) And so they just get shunted to the side. And if you're going to start on a grand goal of saying we're going to bring these heads of of REITs together 
for the purpose of increasing diversity and economic opportunity, not only in the job suites, but in the hotel business itself. The hotel business is a huge business mm-hmm. with service providers that you know this as well as I do. There's a tremendous amount of business that, that the hotel industry brings to the marketplace, to the U.S. economy. How much of that business, minority opportunities, minority procurement, minority services flows into the Black community? And of course, every hotel has uh, minority customers. So to me, coming up with a charter without a, a, a mandate with an accountable requirement to the charter is a waste of time. So I, we all have, a, you know, you're a publicly traded company. You got you got a comp committee. There's a comp committee charter. You got a non-gov committee. There's a non-gov committee charter. And there are, of course, corporate charters. And there are companies who oversee, I mean, some of these uh, shareholder groups like uh, Glass-Lewis and ISS. They evaluate companies on their performance related to their charter. So if you got a commit comp committee charter and they're paying the executives, you know, without return to a certain kind of criteria, accountability, let's say total shareholder return, what they will do is they will recommend to some of the big stockholders in those companies like Fidelity or, or BlackRock a no vote. That'll get your attention. That'll get the attention of the uh, comp committee. That'll get the attention of the CEO. That'll get attention to all the shareholders. How has how uh, RLJ Lodging weathered the pandemic? And what excites you most about the company's future? Well, what RLJ Lodging Trust did, and I think a lot of the, the smart hotels did, we were fortunate in that we position ourselves just as part of our business, not in anticipation of a pandemic, because we didn't know how it was how bad it was going to be or when it was going to get to that point. We always had a focus on making sure we purchase the right hotels and manage the right hotels that are compliant with our strategy of serving certain types of customers, leisure customers, business traveler customers. And we wanted to make sure that our hotels were located in markets where we would find that customer flow, that airlift that brought customers there for various business or or, or leisure type uh, activities or in markets where entry was difficult so we wouldn't find ourselves facing a lot of new build. We also focused on making sure our our hotels were refreshed, renovated, and spending their CapEx in the right way to make the hotel comfortable and, and compliant with our strategy. Of course, hiring good management teams and focus intensively on overseeing our management teams that were running the, the management companies that were running our hotels. We did all those things and, and, and we made sure that our financial, our balance sheet was structured to withstand the cycles, whether the cycles were the normal cycles of the hotel industry or a cycle caused by an unintended event and in the case of COVID. So when COVID struck, like everybody else, you know, people stopped traveling uh, and COVID was something that was causing uh, businesses uh, unable to uh, bring customers together. So we had to shut down almost 50% of our properties because if a hotel is not making money, there's no sense keeping it up. And uh, we also, first thing first, made sure we were taking care of our customers in the, at the headquarters of the company and, and, and in the hotels and making sure they were safe. We decided to you know, reduce or limit the amount of people who were coming to the offices in our companies, but still providing the ability of people to communicate and interact. 
And because we happen to, you know, sell off some properties and position ourselves to deal with our leverage and our, our, our capital, we were able to weather the financial consequences of COVID by having enough liquidity on hand and enough comfort relations with our banks to continue to have the liquidity to, to keep our hotels operating that were operating. Outside of just REITs and, and so on, are there any other industries or are there certain industries that you as an investor think look particularly attractive post-pandemic? Obviously, I think uh, healthcare is going to always be the growth industry. Mm. So now, you know, I, I wanted to spend this, the last portion, speaking to you about this, the concept of combating racism, systemic racism, unconscious bias. We've talked about you as being a successful business person, a businessman, right? And that would have happened, you know, under any circumstance because of just who you are. And I think that the, the viewpoint that you have on life. But of course, we understand that, you know, there are so many different people who are dealing with different issues. So I'd like to get your thoughts on, you know, a couple of other things that are affecting the Black community and, 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 and a lot of different communities of color. So a big part of inclusion in the workplace is allowing and encouraging employees to bring their authentic selves to work. However, people of color still feel the need to, and the, the kids say it this day, it's code switch, right? They have to switch in between um, being authentic and fitting in. And so how much should people of color conform to the cultures of their workplace versus how much should their workplace conform to them? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And I think it goes to the issue of if you feel that you're in the workplace and you're doing what you feel is right and what is consistent with the company's culture, there's no need for you to try to modify your lifestyle mm -hmm. to fit with the company. Because if the company has a good culture, it will accept your differences. And if you believe that you are doing things that are in the best interest of the company and yourself, there shouldn't be much in the way of conflict in that. So I, I don't I don't think that should be a big issue. It does sometimes require you to to not you can't walk into the office expecting to be treated differently. Because if you do that, you're going to be looking for divergence in the way you're treated. And that can cause you to have an anxiety that's not really justified. So you got to be confident in yourself. Now, you know, you will run into people and conditions that are just plain unfair or to say it in a full sentence, racist. Under that circumstance, you have to confront it head on and make the case that you're not prepared to be treated that way. If that's the case and you are treated that way, you have one or two options. You can, if there's a remedy by going to, going to HR or legal, you do that. The other remedy you have, which is the ultimate remedy, is you can just quit and move on and take your expertise elsewhere. But you should recognize the trick in this is how to manage it where you don't feel like you're selling your soul to get a job, to keep a job. And at the same time, you're going around looking for a behavior that's detrimental to your well-being at the job. And that's something that Black Americans 
have to live with and are born with. It's something that many white Americans don't understand. I know in my career, and you probably talk to any black man in America or any black woman in America, we have encountered situations that are clearly based on indifference, ignorance, or just plain outplaying racism. Now, you can take those three categories and say, how do I deal with them? Ignorance, you can, you know, work around. Indifference, you may be able to work around. Racism brings it square to you. And that's when your sort of self-meaning and self-esteem has to take over and say, this is not something I'm going to tolerate. It's a question is, the key question is, how do you calibrate when you encounter those things? Well, you know, one of the things that I think you're bringing up here, and I think it's just interesting, is that the level of sophistication across any individual, they, it varies greatly, right? And so where we do find encounters that are, you know, damaging to the Black community, the assumption is that every person that you're encountering has the ability to cal- calibrate. And some people just don't, right? Or they calibrate and they're just wrong about what the instance that they're confronted with really is true, what the underlying issue is. And it does, you know, lead to the escalation um, sometimes that, you know, creates a lot of the different issues that we're seeing. So I think it's so important that you're you're pointing out that there is this continuous calibration in our minds of what are we dealing with and then how do we appropriately respond, which doesn't necessarily always meet the situation. And I just also would point out to those who are listening that at the end of the day, when your employees, when your coworkers are dealing with which face they're putting on today or how they have to do that, it takes away from the productivity. I believe it absolutely harms the companies because rather than worrying about the work product, they're worrying about things that are sometimes inconsequential or maybe detrimental to the to the final result. So you're absolutely right. And if, if again, to what companies can do that kind of sensitivity uh, interaction uh, or discussion could go a long way towards helping companies maximize, like you said, their productivity, but maximize the joint commonality of a culture. There is a a belief that wealth and success neutralizes racism and discrimination. And as one of the most successful businessmen in the world, do you still encounter racism or discrimination in terms of your business practices? And and I'd be interested, if so, in what ways? You might recall that as a wealthy person, I had an encounter at a hotel that insisted that I had to take my sunglasses off to check into the hotel after it already had my credit card and everything else. That was an example of me dealing with somebody who was behind the desk. It was just plain ignorance. And uh, so it does come up and it's there and it's in the society. So you can't say I'm immune to it because I got a couple dollars. You got to understand that Malcolm X famously said in his book, what do you call a black man with a million dollars? It was the N word. Mm -hmm. So that's the story of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I, I, you would find if you were to sit down, you know, everybody would say they've been discriminated against. You got to talk to Michael Jordan and he would say that he was told he couldn't play at a certain golf course because he had cargo pants on. Now, people would say they might not have done that if it had been George Clooney, but who knows? You never know. They wouldn't, wouldn't have done that. 
You can tell the story of Oprah, who was sort of escorted out of a luxury shop in Paris. And I can tell you stories of uh, when I was uh, starting Black Entertainment Television, had become successful. One of the guys in the cable industry came up to me and said, Bob, uh, have you heard that the uh, Ku Klux Klan purchased all the rights to the movie Roots. Remember the TV series Roots? Absolutely. And I said, uh, now I know there's a joke behind this and I'm saying, oh, okay, what's the, what's the story? He said, well, they purchased it and they're going to run it backwards so it'll have a happy ending. Now, that's plain racism, ignorance. That's just because I was in the business, they were in the business, they were, you can argue, trying to be friendly or whatever it was, but these are the kinds of things you'll run into, but that that is what I call ignorant racism, but overt, you know, the kind that you feel threatened for your life, for your liberty. Most wealthy people, you know, if you think about it, have a following that sort of tr- sometimes transcends them from racism. And I, you know, I asked that question because it just goes back to one of the other answers that you gave already which is this concept of how are you treated when it is not apparent, when you're out of context, right? When it is not apparent that you are the great Robert L. Johnson, right? And you are just a dressed down, going to run an errand. You know, are, do you feel that we as a society are getting to a point where you are, when you're not projecting your wealth or your status or your background, are you in a place where you're comfortable in the society in which you live? Yeah, one of the advantages of being a successful Black business person is that you are not in the category of the successful Black entertainer or athlete. Mm. So again, most people who are celebrated for their wealth in Black America, and because they are they are promoting themselves and their goals and they're part of entertainment mm-hmm. are wealthy black entertainers and athletes. Mm-hmm. So you could be a wealthy or well-off or high net worth black business person and pretty much skate along anonymously mm-hmm. within, um, unless you happen to be in an environment in business and because there's so few of you. So for example, if I go to as a member of the business council, I can walk in the business council and 75% of the business council members who are all white business leaders will know me. Not because they know also about my accomplishments and everything. I'm just the only black. <laughs> oh, I have an advantage of being known because I am the only black in the room. My last question for you is, are you working on anything new and what's next for Mr. Robert L. Johnson? I think there are two things that I really, you know, people say, what do you want to accomplish? There's one thing that I really want to accomplish is the implementation of of what we talked about earlier in the 401k space, something we call auto portability. To understand that African-Americans, when they leave a job, they cash out at about 60 to 70 percent. Wow compared to white Americans. So that means not only do they pay taxes when they cash out on their 401k account, they also lose the savings for retirement. 
So my goal, if I can get the large, what they call financial record keepers, the people who manage most of the 401k accounts for large corporations, mm. that'd be like Vanguard and Fidelity. We could literally put close to a billion dollars or more back into the pockets of Black Americans over the next generation. Tens of billions of dollars, really, wow. back in the pockets. And the thing I like about this, it doesn't require government legislation. It doesn't require taxpayers to go in their pocket to do it. It's just changing a behavior and getting the large corporations to say, we want our Black employees and other low-wage workers to stop cashing out and put this money into savings. That's the one thing that I am really uh, committed to working on. The other thing that I'm doing is the fact that I just got a report on it today. The biggest problem facing Black business people, it's really simple. It's lack of access to capital. Without capital, you cannot create a business that gets to scale. And therefore, a business that can't get to scale, you cannot compete. So we've got to figure out a way to put money back into the pockets of Black Americans. I mean, it's just, a, just a really simple. When Tom Baltimore and I bought our first six hotels, overnight, we became the largest Black-owned hotel company in the country. <laughs> in fact, had we bought two, we would have been the largest. <laughs> so we took that and we went out and raised capital as a private equity fund and then converted the private equity fund investors uh, in the hotel properties into a REIT. But that's because we were able to raise capital because of my connections and Tom's uh, management skill. That's what made the difference as to why we are a hotel REIT and why Tom is managing Park, because we were able to get access to capital. The same thing with BET. John Malone invested the first $500,000 into BET. Some 20 years later, in 1991, when the company went public, John's $500,000 were worth millions of dollars because he had enough confidence to invest capital, put capital at my disposal. And so to me, what I'm working on now is I'm asking the Treasury Department and the government, by extension, to implement a program that says if a Black person creates a company and you invest in that company, when you sell that company or a company make a profit, you can sell your shares or your interest and get a reduction in your capital gains. Wow. So this was something that was in place during back about when Bill Clinton was president. It was called a tax certificate. And very simple, I'll be really quick. The way it would work is this. Let's say uh, you wanted to buy a radio station and a white person wanted to sell you the radio station, but you didn't have the $5 million it cost to buy the radio property. He could then say to you, wait a minute, if you sell me this, if you buy this station and you only got $4 million, I'm going to get a reduction in my capital gains because I bought it for like a, a million dollars. So I'm going to have to pay a capital gains tax mm -hmm. if I sell it to the guy for five million. But if you bought it, my capital gains is going to be reduced by 30, 40 percent. So because I want to create diversity in radio, I'll sell it to you. Now, if you take that concept and extend it to every business where you say, I want to be in this business. And you get people to invest with you. Or if somebody Black has a publicly traded company and they say, we're going to buy shares in RLJ Lodging Trust. Listen, I could not have asked for a better um, interview. I could not have asked for a more insightful, more thoughtful and just 
plain, fascinating uh, conversation today. I want to thank you profusely for taking the time to speak with me today. It was incredibly informative and it, it's truly, truly a pleasure to me, a living legend. So thank you for everything that you have done. You are amazing. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed being with you.